You're listening to DraftKings Network. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Breaking news! We have a trade! Oh, wow. I mean... Maze, it's a blockbuster! Finally, man. Rui Achimura going to the Lakers. Achimachi. That's right. For K Nun. K Nun and three second round picks. What I like about this trade, I mean, Maze, is that what is the Lakers' fascination about the 21 Washington Wizards? The 2021 Washington Wizards, they're the eight seed that year. Mm-hmm. They now have Russell Westbrook, mm-hmm. Troy Brown Jr., mm-hmm. Thomas Bryant, mm. and come on down, Rui Achimura. I just love that. that LeBron is looking at the roster a couple years ago. He sees Russell Westbrook and says, I want that 34 and 38 Washington Wizards team to be my next championship core. Yes. Was Hau Neto there? Yeah, who else is coming down? Let's try to figure this out. Let's try to predict who LeBron James and Rob Palenka are going to trade for here. Shadaransky? Oh, Shadaransky, who once was called the biggest pickup of the offseason in the NBA GM survey. Yeah, Hau Neto is there. Oh. He'd be great, wouldn't he? little ball handling. Neto positive. Hey, you say you need some shooting? Can I interest you in some Garrison Matthews, perhaps? Only one team that Matthews. Mr. Garrison. Oh, they need size? Alex Len at your service, perhaps? Wait a minute. We just saw on ESPN, Pat Riley called Kareem Abdul-Jabbar the GOAT. Yeah. And I disagree with that. I also disagree with LeBron being the GOAT because, you know, who's on that 2021 roster on the Washington Wizards? Who's that? Michael Jordan? Ish Smith. Oh. Oh, I should have known. <laughs> I was going to say, I couldn't remember which tour of duty this was for Ish Smith. Yeah. Was he on the Wizards at that point? Was he traded that season? Did he get traded there that season? Hard to keep track, but always a safe bet. Guys, burying the lead here. You know what LeBron really needs? Championship experience. 
And boy, do I have something for you. Uh-huh. In the guise of Jordan Bell, come on down. Was that the year Jordan Bell and Alex Len were signed off the street and started that night? You guys remember that one? Yeah. Oh, what a time that was in Wizards basketball. I don't think Ish Smith has played for the Lakers. Let's make this happen. He has not. They have a point guard spot now that Kendrick Nunn is out the door. <laughs> yeah, they need some more guard play. Some would argue that they had a point guard spot open. When Kendrick Dunn was in the door. Oh, that's not nice and mean. It's all right. He's going to our nation's capital, Chocolate City. Hey, you guys know what I love about deals is the forensics. When they say, oh, and they're going to send a 2023 second round pick that was Chicago's. And I got onto this rabbit hole of, wait a second, how did the Lakers acquire this 2023 second round pick from Chicago? Hmm. Well, this is a fun one. So let's start with where it began. This 2023 second round pick was Chicago's and Chicago sent it to Washington of all places in the deal for Otto Porter. They sent Jabari Parker, Bobby Portis, who I must confess, I do not recall Bobby Portis being a Washington wizard at any point in his life. This came as news to me. It just started with the Miritich altercation three Bobby Porters I know punching Miritich shitting on the Knicks on the way out the door winning a championship in Milwaukee those only (laughs) Bobby Porter I know very forgetful Wizards tenure extremely so he goes with Jabari Parker to Washington for Otto Porter and additionally they send a 2023 second round pick that is top 36 protected I love that a protected second round pick the best now watch this later on that summer the Wizards Send Thomas Shadaransky to Chicago in a sign and trade. And what did they get back in that trade? The 2020 second round pick, which is the more favorable of a couple of heavily protected picks, a option to swap with the Lakers 2022 second round picks, and removal of the protection on the 2023 second round pick that Chicago owed to Washington. No! Yes. You can trade the removal of a protection? (laughs) Yes, you can amend prior protection terms. But how does it get to the Lakers? Well, the aforementioned Russell Westbrook deal in which a bunch of people went to a bunch of different places. I'm not going to name them all. It's far too many players. It was a five-team trade with the Lakers, the Wizards, the Nets, the Pacers, and the Spurs. But in that deal, the Wizards sent the Lakers that 2023 unprotected Chicago second round pick. And here it is going back to Washington in the Rui Hachimura deal. And you know what I'm rooting for now, guys? What's that? I want Chicago and Washington to do a deal where that pick goes back home, baby, back to the shy. And we are full circle. Everyone is made whole. My assignment. Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money. And you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA Illuminati. I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's but- all it took. Oh, we got books. We got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. 
This is Basketball Illuminati. I am Tom Haberstroh, and as always, I'm joined by the five-star generals, the co-presidents of the Illumination, Amin Hassan and producer Anthony Mays. Fellas, I've been so excited to get this episode out there. It is jam-packed. We've got lots going on in the league. A Stan Van Gundy tweet that needs unpacking by who else? The foremost injury expert in the world, or at least injury prevention expert in the world. His name is Marcus Elliott, a truth teller to the fullest, the founder of P3. They have about two thirds of NBA player injury, body movement data. He is going to join us to explain how today's game is so much different than it used to be. And also how athletes' bodies are changing and getting more broken down before they get into the league and also find out which NBA player has the shortest vertical in the NBA. That should have been your lead right there. I don't know why you buried that, man. That's what people came for. But first... You are listening to The Agenda with Tom Haberstroh and Amin El-Hassan. Guys, I kind of feel like this is all orchestrated. Pro wrestling meets the NBA. Shannon Sharp, Skip Bayless, that whole awkward thing, the vendetta between the hosts over there. Then John Morant and the Memphis Grizzlies come into town. There's this whole altercation with Shannon Sharp's sideline courtside with Dylan Brooks just before halftime. Then LeBron James comes out stumping for Shannon Sharp. Which is oddly very counter to... Prior comments he had made about the status of fans at games sitting courtside and involving themselves in the proceedings, but continue. It just feels like to me this is preordained, that this is a stunt. It seems so calculated what's happening here. Shannon Sharp drawing more viewers to his program. You got LeBron James stumping for him. There's something missing here. I feel like there's some other shoe that's going to drop on this story. Tom, the word you're looking for is orchestrated. This had all the makings of something that was orchestrated, particularly considering that Shannon Sharp faced no sanction or immediate consequence for his actions at the game or otherwise. This has not been the modus operandi of the NBA in recent years with regards to behavior by fans, unruly behavior, some might say especially considering the use of some foul language there, albeit given that Dylan Brooks allegedly started it. LeBron James, after the game, posted on Instagram a photo of Shannon Sharp looking very menacingly back with his amazingly looks like my grandma's sweater. That's not your grandma's sweater, Tom. No? That is a indigo fisherman knit cardigan from greg lauren retailing at a whopping three thousand one hundred and twenty five dollars and then the caption from lebron is if quote i wish a mother would but there's a hashtag and the you in case you wanted to censor that was a person mood and then snarling emojis 
What do you call that emoji with the smoke coming out of the nose? Snorting. That's the snort emoji. It's supposed to be modeled after what a bull does. Yeah. You know, with the smoke coming out. Unk vibes, prayer emoji, fist up emoji, king crown emoji. There it is. So this seems not part of what LeBron James is all about. Is fans impacting the game, going over the line. Something smells off here. I guess I didn't know that Shannon Sharp had this much cachet in the NBA. Oh, he does in the world of LeBron. Right. So that I get because you hate Skip Bayless, Mm -hmm. who's the avatar of a former athlete yelling at Skip Bayless on the regular. That's Shannon Sharp. Well, not only that, but also very pro LeBron. You'll remember he wears the LeBron jersey with a like goat mask on. He is very performative and demonstrative and very unapologetic about his full-on gushing fanboyness for LeBron. So it's not just that he sits opposite of the face of anti-LeBron sentiment. And throw on to that, of course, the fact that he is a former athlete and a Hall of Famer. And as we know from uninterrupted and undisputed and all these un things, that being a former athlete means that you're somehow just a little bit more special when it comes to your opinions. Because who else could pull this off? Spike Lee? Well, see, I was thinking about it. If Nick Wright, the dastardly thieving Nick Wright... <laughs> Had been the one. Would LeBron had jumped to his side because Nick Wright is another unapologetic, very pro-LeBron media member. But I just don't think Nick Wright is muscly enough. Mm. Not quite enough muscles, Nicky. Not enough unk vibes. Yeah, go get the gym. And while you're at it, why don't you get the library, borrow some more shit from other people. <laughs> it almost feels like to me, I mean, that LeBron James hired Shannon Sharp. What? Tom, who hires someone to heckle someone? That doesn't even make sense. Oh, it does. Students of the game, historians of the NBA, truth tellers and storytellers will remember that accusation. An NBA player orchestrating, hiring, placing a heckler, a known heckler, courtside just to piss off the opponent. Scooter McGavin? Hey, Gilmore. You suck, you jackass. That, my friends, is a blueprint that has been copied to a T by a one Charles Barkley. It's a conspiracy. Back in 1993, it's the Bulls, the Suns, going at it in the finals. Charles Barkley is just a few wins away from winning his championship against hated rival Michael Jordan, a guy who's trying to get a three-peat. And Amin... Robin Ficker is his name. Uh, the legendary Robin Ficker. Legendary. Does this jog your memory at all, I mean? I remember Robin Ficker very well, Tom. He was the number one heckler in the NBA. He was a Washington Bullets season ticket holder. His seats were right behind the visiting bench. And he was relentless. He brought props. He did his own research. The things I remember about him, though, I remember this because I remember reading about him and then deciding when I heckle players, I'm also going to follow these rules. One is never curse. He never curse and never use any obscene gestures. And I thought that was really, really cool because they can't get you for saying something mean. They can get you for saying something that is uncouth. But they can't get you for what he said of Michael Jordan said, hey, want to bet? I'm going to talk about the game. You know, 
that was Robin Ficker at his best. The other thing I remember about him, Tom, is that when the Wizards were moving to the then MCI Center, I believe now it's called the Capital One Center, they refused to give him the same seats that he had at the old Cap Center in Maryland. And that's why he let his season tickets go. Yeah. I remember that was a big deal. And I was like, oh, he'll be back after a year or whatever. And he never came back. He did not make the jump into the 21st century, ma'am, with the rest of us. Charles, during the 93 NBA Finals, it was rumored and reported that he put Ficker behind the Chicago Bulls bench to heckle Michael Jordan, who he's heckled dozens of times before. Robin Ficker would make fun of Michael Jordan losing his hair and going bald. And every time that Michael Jordan scored a basket, what would Michael Jordan do? He would rub his bald head. Yeah. They had a history back and forth, but of course, Barry Jackson, the Miami Herald reporter, the Barry Jackson, the Barry Jackson reported back in the day, talking about the sort of things that he would do to get under Michael Jordan's skin. One of which was when Jordan rules came out, the legendary book written by Sam Smith, Robin Ficker would bring the book and read bookmarked passages that were very critical of Michael Jordan quotes from Bill Cartwright or Scottie Pippen or Phil Jackson. And this all came to a head. I mean, I don't know if you had known this little afterward in this story. Phil Jackson clapped back at him. That Robin Ficker? Yeah. What did he say? According to this story I'm reading right now in the archives, on several occasions, Ficker was seen holding a wad of money in one hand and an oversized playing card bearing the ace of spades in the other, shaking them and yelling at Jordan, do you want to bet? What do you want to bet on this game? Because of the story that was coming out, national headlines, the sit down with Ahmad Rashad, Michael Jordan, noted gambler, was out late at night and had gambling issues. And there was that book that came out from the San Diego businessman, one of his friends. They bet a lot of money. And apparently Michael Jordan had a bunch of gambling debts. So, of course, that's a lot of material for Robin Ficker to use at Michael Jordan after a game the Bulls had no response until the final minutes of the game when coach Phil Jackson yelled, pay your alimony and child support, be a good citizen. Was it the first time that this came up? Apparently Robin Ficker was in some sort of trouble with his family for abuse, which is no laughing matter, No, but it did shut him up because we had one time R.C. Buford. Yes, that R.C. Buford, who was running the San Antonio Spurs. Here's another clip. When they visited Washington Bullets last week, the Los Angeles Clippers were prepared for the world's most infamous heckler, Robin Ficker. Assistant coach R.C. Buford brought a copy of a suburban Washington newspaper, which ran a story about Ficker's daughter accusing him of being abusive to the family. Buford turned to Ficker and read the story aloud. For the first time in anyone's memory, Ficker had nothing to say. Now, do you think R.C. shared this with the rest of the league? And if he did, did he fax it to everybody? Mm. What sort of 20 CV method did he use to disseminate this information? It's a good question. This guy is a legend, right? RC stood up to him, Phil Jackson, Michael Jordan. I love the idea that they felt the need to stand up to this guy. Some lawyer from Bethesda, Maryland or something. You had to stand up to him. It goes back to something that we talked about in the past. I love when old retired players like back in my day, we wouldn't da 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 da. You guys are all hot and bothered about some dorky little lawyer sitting behind the bench who wasn't even cursing or using the N word or any of the wild shit that some of these players nowadays have to deal with. Get out of here, man. I submit to you, 90s players, the most spoiled generation. 
because they got the money. They cashed in on the big money. But at the same time, they had all the protections of society at that point. They didn't have to deal with the real rough stuff of the guys in the 60s, the poverty of the 70s and the 80s, the internet and all the stuff of the modern era. They had it all. They were rich and they got to do whatever the hell they wanted. And they tried to take the power away from him. They wrote to the league. They tried to spit at him. Golden State Warriors players threw Gatorade at him. When you say spit, Tom, do you mean... Spitting facts? Like San Van Gundy? What were they doing exactly with this spitting? Yeah, they weren't standing for Ficker. Oh. But Ficker used to give out tips on how to be the best heckler. And he would always say, don't wear your best suit because they're going to spit on you and they're going to throw Gatorade at you. So Ficker is a legend. He's also kind of Forrest Gumpy because he was involved in Watergate somehow. Was he? Yeah. Washington, D.C.? He's a lawyer inside the Beltway Ficker. He also would train with Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali and him were boys. No. I swear to God, he was a huge fan of Ali and his outspokenness. When Ali came to do a fight in D.C., he read somewhere that he used to run in a particular park to train. At like three in the morning, Ali would get up and go run. And so one day, his dude, Ficker, met him at that park and was like, hey, can I run with you? And Ali loved him. And the rest is history. They became boys after that. Wow. Charles Barkley wasn't the only NBA player who used the services of Robin Ficker to heckle Michael Jordan. In 1992, according to the Los Angeles Times, Robin Ficker sat behind the Chicago bench at Madison Square Garden at game four and let Michael and Scotty hear it. So much so that Jerry Krause complained and filed a protest against Ficker personally and yelling at the Knicks president, Dave Checkets. The Knicks said, hey, we didn't give him the ticket. And Ficker said, no, it was Patrick Ewing. It's a conspiracy. Patrick Ewing hired this dude, allegedly, to heckle Michael Jordan. So Shannon Sharp, this wouldn't be the first time that an NBA star hired a heckler courtside. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause, even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity in the gray lie not in the truth. But what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. Keeps them up nice. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man. You can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. Marcus, we've known each other for quite a bit, but I decided to go to your website, P3, and just check it out, see what's going on today. 
how the website looks. So this is one of the biggest, smartest sports performance labs. Tons of athletes, pro athletes from across the world come to Santa Barbara, get their assessment done and train in the off season. If you name like three NBA players, chances are two of them have been through Santa Barbara, your offices there to get checked out. So I was like, oh, I wonder what the latest technology or what the latest addition to your lab is. And I was greeted with this little documentary, this movie, Mm -hmm. and it has your narration and you're talking. It has this moment where it's like the moment I realized I wanted to save other athletes from injury and try to prevent injury and make them better and build them better and stronger and have amazing careers and build better athletes tomorrow. There's this little part where it says you blew out your knee at 17 years old. There was footage of some kid limping off a football field. Since we're about truth on this program, is that actually footage of of 17-year-old Marcus Elliott? Since we're about truth, that is not footage of 17-year-old Marcus Elliott. (laughs) They couldn't find footage. Those things were recorded, but it was some kind of film. There was nothing digital back then, so. You burned all film from that. You found all evidence of that moment of your life, and you have lit it aflame. That is a real story. There's no doubt about it. I've always made this push that what we're doing in sports science is, you know, innovating this data-driven approach isn't me, that it's this whole team, and, you know, that I can do a little bit of it, and the team can do a little bit, and better, bigger team can do a little bit more. Everyone can be about me, but this group came in, a smart group out of Oklahoma City came in and started asking me, how'd you end up doing this? And I told them that I wanted to do this since I was a kid, since I was in high school. And the truth is that moment when I thought my future was over, because I love sports, I was a bad student, prototypical smart kid that sat in the back of class and screwed around, but I put a lot into sports. And then all of a sudden I couldn't do sports because I tore three ligaments in my right knee and I was depressed literally for a year and a half, probably clinically depressed, 17-year-old. It was on my 17th birthday. Oh, My best friend moved into my position and set Northern California state records and started dating my girlfriend. And No. What? All true. Marcus, he stole your life? We're about truth on the show, right? Wow. Jeez. That's how that shit happens in the movies, right? Like, that's the inflection <laughs> point. That is a villain origin story right there, by the way. Well, hopefully it's a hero origin story, too, because that was really my inspiration. I picked myself up off the bottom of the floor, the deepest hole in the floor. And I was like, shit, we can't let this happen to other people. And in my injury, actually, I trace it back. I had a huge ankle injury the year before. I kind of played through it. It never healed. My right ankle was never quite right. And then the next year, I blew out my knee. And then my body's never quite the same again, right? Even as a 17-year-old, I was like, God, these things are related. I felt bulletproof until I tore these ligaments in my ankle. And then I have this giant injury. So that was a drive to be smarter, to use more data and intelligence and better models to help that not happen to other people. It was enough of a drive that went from being a really bad student to being a very good student and being a kid who partied a lot to a kid who didn't party at all. And was always ahead of things because I just had some vision that we could do this better and smarter. That propelled me from 18 years old to what I do now. True story. Not true footage of Marcus Elliott at 17, but true story. Did you know it at the time or was this one of those things as you look back as you're getting your PhD or as you're at Harvard or whatever it is that you're like, I wonder how I got here. It might have been that when I was 17. Were you realizing this was going to be your call, your path? In real time. You know, I, I actually knew that before I got hurt, I felt like this was my path. I told my dad that what I wanted to do was study the human body really hard and then apply it in sports. 
Hmm. And it's because I was fascinated by it, by, you know, even as a, as a kid, I was fascinated by it. Like, you know, these two guys look almost identical, but in the hundred meters, one guy starts fast. The other one closes fast. Why is that? You know, why is broccoli good for you? What is this? How does this machine work that I've landed in? And then I, I love sports. So I told my dad, that's what I want to do. But I think what locked it in, certainly what locked in the effort it was going to take to do it at a really high level was getting injured. Seeing this thing happen to me that I'm sure was preventable. The space that we're in right now is exactly where I would have dreamed that we would be when I was 17. Of course, it's 30 years later, but these things take time. (laughs) What were the early years of this endeavor like? You graduated college. Yeah. You are now focused. This is clearly going to be your path. What was that early time like? What I did, even when I was in school, when I was doing academics, I like put myself in environments where I was working with athletes. So I started working in the Olympic Training Center. I worked with Olympic athletes for quite a while. Then I worked with endurance athletes and then eventually in the NFL and then Major League Baseball and then NBA. The thread that ran through all of this is that at almost every stage of my academic path, People thought it was a complete waste of a world-class education. Now, Marcus, how is that, given the amount of money going into professional sports, you said, you know, 30 years later, so I'm doing the rough math here. You're roughly my age. You're a little older than I am. Sports had already become big business by the 90s. How could people have said, oh, what a waste of time or something that I'm not even talking about the spiritual or esoteric path that you're leading strictly from a, is this a lucrative business or not? How could anyone overlook that? Listen, that's a good takeoff point. Let's just say it was a lucrative value proposition to take better care of athletes in the 90s. I mean, it's much more lucrative now, but professional teams hadn't valued it yet. Mm. Okay. That's like a really important stage in this is that. Pro teams hadn't valued it yet. When I graduated medical school, there wasn't a job in the NFL, which is where I was working at the time with the Patriots. There wasn't a job in the organization taking care of athletes or in anybody else's organization that would have allowed me to pay off my educational debt. Hmm. Guys were making 55 grand and I've got a $300,000 educational debt coming out of Harvard Medical School and a lot of other schools. So teams hadn't valued it yet. It's only in this last half decade or so that they've started really valuing it. Somehow this was just left behind. It was so obvious to me, like the care of Olympic athletes had so much less slack in it than the care of professional athletes. We work with Olympic speed skaters and these guys, they'll eat dirt if it's going to make them a little bit faster. They will do anything to be a little bit better, to recover a little bit better. And yet they have almost zero chance of having a real career as a speed skater. Right. If they hit all their marks, they're going to have one day where they're going to end up on TV in four years. And they might get a sponsor or two out of that that allows them to let go of their part-time job. But then you step into professional sports and you see so much slack. It hadn't been valued at a high enough level that teams were investing in it. And it was bringing in a bunch of bright people and enough resources to really care for these guys and developing systems and models that will take that slack out. That's the stage we're in right now. Only in the last half decade plus, you know, the last, say, seven years or so that organizations are really investing in these sports science, sports medicine, and strength staffs, which led to that Van Gundy quote that you hit me on yesterday, Tom. Yeah. When that Stan Van Gundy quote came across my timeline, and as of this moment, 6 million people have seen it, it struck a chord with a lot of people. And I immediately thought of you, Marcus, is I wonder what Marcus has to say about this. And you almost nodded your head, was like, you know what? There's a lot of truth to what Stan is talking about. It doesn't tell the whole picture. No tweet can. But the tweet, for those who don't know, is 90s NBA teams had just a trainer and a strength coach. They practiced more often and harder and played more back-to-backs. Teams now 
have huge medical and, in quotes, performance staffs and value rest over practice, yet injuries and games missed are way up. Something's not working with an exclamation point. So you read that tweet or someone texts you that tweet. What does Marcus Elliott think of that? 20 people texted it to me. (laughs) I try to stay out of the Twitter sphere, but it's really hard not to jump into that. So my first thought, honestly, is I love that Stan is willing to make that call. That's a call that's going to be a little bit disruptive, right? Mm -hmm. And he's not wrong. The dollars you throw at this isn't in direct proportion to your result. And you have to know, I thought about this so much. We have one foot in so many different professional organizations. You know, we work with so many different pro teams. I see these different groups being assembled. I see how they're assembled. I see where their goals are. But Stan is 100% right. You know, when we got involved in the NBA, there was a head strength coach, maybe an assistant strength coach, and a head trainer, probably an assistant trainer at that time, 12, 14 years ago. Really, two guys were running the whole show. The head athletic trainer is overseeing sports science, if there's anything kind of sports science-y about it. He's overseeing the medical staff. He's overseeing the strength staff generally. He's handing out per diems to the players for the day. I mean, he's doing so many things. There's no way that's the right model. But you would think now that you have 12 guys or 14 guys instead of two, and the lowest salary in that of those 14 guys is bigger than either of those two salaries 15 years ago. Combined. You would think you would have better results. The way I see this is that we're at a stage where you have potential to have great results now. Mm. We're not at the stage where you're having great results. There's some groups that are doing it pretty well, but it's all kind of new assembling these groups. And I think the thing Stan misses, and this is so obvious to me in our space, in that sport in the NBA, almost two-thirds of the current players have been through one of our facilities and assessed. So almost two-thirds, 64% as of last count of current NBA players have been to one of the P3 facilities. So we have all this granular data on how they move, how they cut. We know their system. And we can go back 10 years. We didn't have as big a number as 10 years ago, but we have a lot of players even 10 years ago. And the athletes today are so much better. We have all the data to show you. They're so much better than the athletes 10 years ago. That's especially true as you get into the bigger athletes in the NBA. It used to be if you're seven feet tall and you can move reasonably well, you had a little bit of skills, you're going to play in that league. And now if you don't move really well laterally and you're seven feet tall, you're not an NBA player. There's a play the other night, Marcus, where Santi Aldama, a rookie, 6'11 rookie for the Memphis Grizzlies, play dies. He grabs the ball, goes down the other end, puts the ball through his legs and dunks it. Yeah. And it was just a blah play. It was a minor blip on the radar. And here is this 6'11 dude who's probably 230, putting the ball through his legs, a move that growing up would blow your minds if you saw anybody doing that. And that's a 6'11 dude that is a borderline first round pick. Yeah, he was a 30th pick in the NBA draft. And that's just the norm now for a seven footer. Yeah, amen. We thought about publishing the data on the physical systems delta in NBA bigs from 10 years ago, because we have enough data. We could show you like head to head how those systems have changed from 2012 to 2022. They're just very, very different systems. They're such better athletes. And so my point is that what Stan misses is that this sport is so ballistic now. It's so fast. It's so explosive. These athletes are a bunch of Ferraris out there, even the really long ones. So it's just a lot harder to keep these guys whole. The forces these guys are dealing with, the ballistic nature, the time pressure and all these cuts is so high that it's just difficult to survive. And it's honestly, of all the sports we've worked in, I was the first director of sports science in in the NFL and also in Major League Baseball before that. Of all the sports we worked in, basketball is by far the one where the demands on the athletes are the closest to what the athletes are able to survive. Whoa. What's being asked of them 
is the closest to the threshold of what the athletes are going to be able to survive. The only other sport or position of the sports that I've worked in, which is quite a few, that is similar is pitchers in baseball. Right. That they're reaching like the red line of what they're capable of. And so in both those, in the NBA, as well as especially starting pitchers, but all pitchers in Major League Baseball, when they have a mechanical issue, when they have a big asymmetry, when there's something, they have some pathology in their system, because the forces they're being asked to endure are so close to what they're going to be able to manage, if they have a little bit of mechanical issue, now they're in excess of what they can manage. And stuff breaks. So on that point, Baxter Holmes did a great piece in 2019. It seems like it was yesterday, but a few years ago, talking about how broken players are coming into the NBA. Mm-hmm. And every time that I come to P3 and I check out your gym there and your facility, there's a lot of kids, a lot of teenagers, a lot of high school athletes who are training, getting assessed. And so you must have so much insight into what condition these players are orthopedically, mentally, physically, their muscles, their pathologies coming from a young age into the NBA. So when LaMelo Ball turns his ankle at 20 years old or Paolo Bancaro pulls his hamstring, is that a reflection of what just happened? Or is that a reflection of AEU circuit five years ago, this stuff accrued over time. Yeah, so the Baxter home story, we were the prompt for that. You know, I told Baxter, I was like, look, Baxter, we're assessing all these top kids. We assess some three quarters of the guys that we'll see at the NBA Combine before we assess them at the NBA Combine. So most of these kids we will have seen. And if we get 15 top of their class, 17-year-olds in, which we've done quite a few times, and we ask him, how many of you 15 guys have something that's really hurting you right now? 12 will raise their hand. These kids are being driven hard. I thought it was great that Baxter could tell that story and make people start thinking about it a little bit, about driving them less hard. And so when they get to the NBA and, you know, Zion can't go his first year, it's partly a result of what's happened to him over that last summer. And it's partly a result of what his body's had to endure to that point. It's a combination of those two things. I will say this, if there's one thing that I'd like to leave your listeners with, it's that how athletes move, how they move today has significant implications as to what happens to them tomorrow. And that's sort of the essence of all the work that we're doing. When we study how these guys move, you can make pretty accurate predictions about what's going to happen to them tomorrow. In the performance realm, if we're trying to predict if a kid is going to be able to guard the perimeter in the NBA, we can assess them based on Newtonian physics. We can say, look, it's going to be incredibly hard for this long wing that was a volume scorer in college, but looks super athletic to everybody. It's going to be very hard for him to stay in front of anybody in the NBA. We can make those calls, even though organizations think they can train that. Sometimes these are systems that can't be trained. Hmm. But we also make predictions about who's going to get broken and where they're going to get broken. We do that every single day with every athlete that comes through our facility. This physics that we expose about these physical systems has lots of implications as to what happens to these athletes in the future. And this next stage of our involvement in NBA is getting better at actioning that stuff with organizations. Yeah. So you're talking about what Stan's getting at is something's not working right. You echo that sentiment. Yes. I'm trying to get a grasp on the magnitude of the factors. How much of whatever injury epidemic we're going through right now, how much of that is the wear and tear on our athletes coming into our league? And how much of this is for lack of a better term, mismanagement, because you did bring up earlier the way some of these staffs are put together. How much of this is on the team side that they're just not doing the best possible job that they could be doing? When these players show up, 
most all of them have a chance to survive, have a chance to have NBA careers. It's a pretty narrow funnel that gets you to the NBA combine and gets you drafted, right? Mm -hmm. And so most all of these kids have a chance. And yet a lot of them never really get any momentum because they end up getting broken. And I put most of that on the staffs because, like I said, they all have a chance to have careers when they show up. Some of them are going to be more difficult solves than other players, but most all of them are solvable. I spent a lot of time around Olympic sport performance people. And when I got into pro sports, I was very hard on strength coaches, performance staffs, even medical staffs in professional sports. There's a lot of bright people that work in those staffs. The mechanics of staffs make it really hard for them to be effective frequently. And over this last 15 years, I've shifted the blame to front offices from the individual staff people. And the reason for that is that teams have decided that keeping their players healthy or optimizing their performance is really valuable. Yep. And their solve for it is to hire more people and pay them bigger salaries. Let's have 14 people and let's pay the head guy 800000 instead of having two people and paying the head guy 60000 So that seems like that is going to be a better environment. But they think that if they throw the money at it and they kind of give the reins to that group and then they just go off and forget about it, that it's a problem solved. Hmm. And it's not a problem solved. There needs to be accountability in these staffs. Usually front office people, they don't really pay attention to what's going on at the staff level. I'm sure I'm going to piss off some front office people by saying that, but I'm just saying it's true. Mm -hmm. It's rare. There's a handful of GMs that I've become friends with or at least professional acquaintances with that are really invested in the space. But there's only a handful. Generally, they want to just hire people and then forget about it. Let it happen over there. There's rarely real accountability set up around the staffs. What happens is everyone pays attention when you have a real bad outcome. Right. When you can't get Kawhi to play for a season or two, then people are like, what's going on over there? Their medical staff. Mm -hmm. But there's no accountability for building a more resilient system, for training these guys, for optimizing these guys, building great athletes out of this raw material that comes into your organization. So we need a lot more accountability. We need front office staff, GMs, assistant GMs that are not just investing in it, but care about it, paying attention, you know, setting up that accountability, rewarding staffs that really get it right, holding accountable to build athletes. When you talk about accountability, this reminds me a lot of the hiring practices in teams, right? When you hire a head coach, the person who is doing the hiring is the GM or the president of basketball ops. They have presumably experience in the field of basketball, and there are both tangible results that are spitting back feedback to us, but also process. I could see how we practice. I could see how you interact with the people on the staff, the players, et cetera, et cetera. So as a GM, I can make that call and make a pretty educated call on accountability for my coaching staff. Yeah. But if you take a step above and say, who hires the GM, the owner often doesn't have a basketball background and they don't know what they're looking for. Oh, yeah. They often just hire someone that sold them a bill of goods. Like, oh, this is exactly what you need. So it's easy to say, hey, you should have accountability, but it's hard when the person making that call has no basis to even know what accountability looks like. So in the case of, something as highly specialized as performance science, right? Sports science. Isn't there a level of these front offices, they don't even know what they're evaluating in order to hold someone accountable to begin with. It's daunting, right? Man, it's an investment. I mean, R.C. Buford didn't know anything about performance 15 years ago, you know? And now he does. He's invested in it. Right now, the NBA champions are being decided based on who doesn't get injured. Yes. There's a 
both teams that are in the pool and the ones that don't get hurt, they win, right? Right. The Warriors with Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Stephen Curry, pretty good yeah. champion worthy. And when they don't have those pieces together, it's a lot harder to win games. Yeah. And so, you know, you can't have too many years where this is the deciding factor on who's the last team standing. You can't have too many of those years without group saying, man, we are going to get on that game. We're going to be committed to this thing. We are going to create accountability. We're going to uptrain ourselves enough that we can create some tangible accountability in these groups for building athletes. And while we're on the subject, just to throw it out there, sports science became load management almost overnight. You're welcome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Covered this space a lot. A lot of people hated me for writing about DNP rests and load management and making it a buzzword, but it is a loaded term, right? Sports science turns into load management and it becomes this stigma. And I don't know... I don't know who to blame for that. Do it is a problem. It's your fault, Tom. Yeah, let's blame Tom. I know who to blame. <laughs> hey, you want to take credit for the term? You take uh, responsibility for it too, man. Fair. I think about this stuff every single day. I just said that the loads that these athletes are expected to endure, the forces they're expected to endure, are close to what the threshold of what they can actually manage, right? What their bodies can manage. That's the NBA season. And so from first principles, it makes sense. Let's just take those loads down a little bit. You know, let's let guys not do as much stuff. But the piece that we're missing is that each of these bodies are either more or less adapted to deal with loads. They're not created the same. And oftentimes we treat them the same. And so you got 12 or 15 players. And if you have a single line that you draw across and say, this is our load threshold, which a lot of teams have done. And I'm sure that if there's pro team guys listening, they're probably going to say, we don't do that. And they may not because it's evolving, but frequently there'll just be a line across that piece of paper to say, if your unitless black box load thing goes above that threshold, then you're not going to do anymore. Then we're going to have to rest you. And I've seen lots and lots of applications, even in this last season of exactly that. And what we need to do is we need to understand why these systems are at risk, the ones that are at more risk or less risk, and the ones that are at more risk, you need to have much more specific targets. Load management shouldn't be the first thing you reach for. The first thing you reach for should be resilience, building robust systems, robust athletes that can endure the rigors of their sport. It shouldn't be, let's rest guys. I've heard this from GMs and coaches is that there's just so many people in the athlete's ear now Yes, that team physicians or team performance coaches, trainers, the head athletic trainer doesn't have the same influence over the player. Or even if they have the greatest system, the greatest program, the greatest training schedule, if the player's not going to listen because he's got a performance coach on his own staff, like his own personal staff, yes. who's like, nah. We've got our own program. That friction, that conflict, I feel like is happening more now than ever. So even if teams wanted to say, look, ex-superstar, we're actually going to play you tomorrow night. And then he's like, I heard a little bit and I don't really think it's in my best interest because he has his own performance staff. Yeah, That's a problem too, is not politics, but workplace warfare is that <laughs> it doesn't matter who's in the room and how many PhDs or how much great studies they've done. If they can't win over the player or his own personal staff, a lot of this is moot. Yeah. I mean, you're not wrong. Those battles are just going to become bigger and bigger. That battleground is going to be more and more hectic going forward because of the power that the players have, especially in the NBA. I hear this from front office people all the time. I hear it from performance people, from medical staff. A lot of times discussions, early season discussions or training camp discussions are how are we going to get our players to do our stuff? How are we going to get them to do any of our shit other than just show up and you know practice and play some games? And the best antidote for that, and some teams have done it really well, 
is to support the hell out of your players. You know, make a compelling case that you've got a super committed staff that are really bright and they have the right plan for you. That's the antidote. Mm -hmm. I generally like the concept that the players are, it's their body, you know, like they should be able to dictate what strategy they're going to use. They should use the most compelling strategy to care for their body, care for themselves. So that's the team's best weapon against that. But it doesn't make them invincible. You got 19-year-old kids coming in the league and they've only seen what they've seen. And they only know what they know. So even if you have a great staff, you get some dissenters. You get some guys only going to their outside people. So I did a chart, Marcus, looking at late 90s, the percentage of games played in a season for an all-star, a star player, all-NBA, all-star player, top 25 players in the league in 1996 yeah. versus 2023. And it starts at 90, 92% games played. Yeah. And it's just slow decline. And in the last like five years, it's kind of like wobbly a little bit because of COVID. But right now, this season, last year's all-stars and all NBA players are playing 75% of the games. On average, they've missed a dozen games already halfway through the season. Marcus Elliott, can you explain that gradual decline in your opinion, why we're going from 90% games played to 75% in 2023. Honestly, I think that we were talking about Stan's quote earlier. I think he has both of the key pieces there. The lead out, the NBA is a much more ballistic league than it was 20 years ago. What these guys have to endure, what these athletes have to endure, what ligaments, tendons, joints have to endure is very different than it was 20 years ago. There's no doubt about it. Even the last five years, what you're seeing players need to do on a basketball court or what you're assessing for or what teams are asking you, hey, how good is he at this? Yes. Those questions are different now than they were even five years ago. They are. Athletes are training smarter. They're training harder. They're more optimized. The pool that the NBA is drawing from has gotten worldwide and the penetration is bigger because these guys are making $300 million on a contract. And so if you have a chance to be an NBA player, if you have some athleticism, there's a reasonable chance that, you know, at some young age, you're on that track. Much bigger chance than there was 20 years ago. And so we have better and much more optimized athletes come in the league. The demands that these athletes have to deal with every year is a little bit bigger. And part of it is the style of the game. Part of it is just the selection process is throwing a much bigger net out there. That's one piece. And then obviously, recently, there's what you brought in. There's a load management thing, buddy. <laughs> You're welcome, man. Always comes back to Tom's fault. <laughs> Players are being rested because there's one time this season really counts, right? That focus more and more is on who's left standing and being healthy and ready to go in playoffs. Well, yeah, I think teams that are resting players, it's from the Warriors, it's from the Celtics, it's from these teams that are trying to compete in June, right? Mm -hmm. And it's how you go. I looked that up is in 2006, the media guide, I could see their org chart and see how many staff members. I mean, when you were with the Suns, was there more than three people? Aaron Nelson was the head trainer, Tom Maystadt and Cowboy Mike Elliott. And Mike Elliott was both assistant trainer and strength coach double duty and then jay gaspar equipment manager that was it we called them training staff mafia just those four guys now if you go to a team media guy marcus you weren't far off there's 10 12 people staffers under that same department so it's tripled in size so it feels like we should be three times as good is it bloated is that bloat it's a complex question okay so first off, the old model was not the right model. Right. Where you got an athletic trainer, maybe an assistant athletic trainer, one strength coach, and there you go. You got it, guys. <laughs> that wasn't the right model. But there definitely isn't a direct correlation between having more people and being better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's just diffusion of responsibility. You know, there's only so much to do. You only have so many athletes. 
And during the season, they're only training so much, right? So having it tighter, everyone's connected, everybody's part of the machine together, smaller group, I would take that all day. I don't think that they're worse because they're bigger, but I don't think they're better because they're bigger either. Mm -hmm. Marcus, who's the most impressive athlete that no one talks about in the NBA? Someone you assessed that your metrics were just popping and maybe people don't think of this as the image of athleticism, but your assessment just was like, wow. I mean, two years ago, I said, that's Luka Doncic. Our athleticism metrics have him off the charts and nobody thinks he's an athlete. I think people think that he couldn't be as effective as he is if he wasn't an athlete now. It's the breaks, right? The breaks. It's the deceleration that he can put people on ice skates just by stopping in his tracks. Yeah, you know this because we put this out in the world before, but traditionally we looked at how fast athletes run and how high they jump. And there's so many second order performance metrics that are so much more interesting, so much more predictive of success than how high you jump. Luka jumps lower than your average NBA guard. He doesn't jump very high. He doesn't run that fast, but he stops better than almost any athlete we've ever assessed. James Harden at his peak was the best breaker we've ever assessed in the NBA. We have this breaking algorithm that takes into account all these physical systems that he needs to stop fast and in control. And Luca, as an 18-year-old, had the second highest metric as a breaker. He was the second best breaker we assessed. So we thought he was an incredible athlete. He just looks kind of doughy and slow while he's being an amazing athlete. Have you had Jokic in there? We have. Yeah, yeah. Is there a physical attribute that he has that people sleep on? Jokic is a great example. That would have been a better example. Thank you. I'll fix that in post, Marcus. Don't worry. <laughs> Jokic has the lowest vertical jump of any NBA player we've ever assessed. <laughs> Number one. That's incredible. Out of, I don't know how many, 980 or something. Damn. Jared Dudley must not have come through. <laughs> I don't think so. But his movement quality is really, really high. One of the things we do, I don't know if you've ever seen this, Tom, but you know we collect all these thousands of data points on how these guys move, how they land, how they change directions, how they slide. We take all that data and we put it in a computer and the computer clusters athletes based on all these movement properties, not just a single one, not like how high you jump, but all of these movement properties. And Jokic moves towards what we think of as our kinematic movers. Kinematic movers are our favorite cluster of our NBA players. They're players like CJ McCollum, Trey Young. They're guys that aren't big jumpers. They're not super accelerators. They're not giant force athletes, but they are the Swiss Army Knives of NBA movement. They can do everything pretty well to their left, to their right. They have no big mechanical risk. And Jokic is that guy in a big form. He has the right answer for every job from a movement standpoint. It's just he has such a low power motor to do it. <laughs> Jokic was the first NBA player that we had in that when he showed up and we're trying to set up court time for him, he said, no basketball, no basketball. Basketball good, points at his belly, not so good. <laughs> he just knows. He's like, I can play, but this needs work, right? So he spent a couple months not touching a basketball. His offseason was just working on his body. And you wouldn't think of him as a guy who just focuses on his body, but he knew enough to just do that. And he was confident enough in what he could do with the basketball that he could not pick it up for a couple months. We got to wrap here in a sec, but I wanted to ask you before you go to put a bow on Stan Van Gundy's quote. I think he's absolutely right that we're not near optimal staffing, optimal application of the science. But there is that piece of they're coming in as Ferraris that have suspensions or brake systems that aren't tip top shape. Yes. Probably the biggest thing when I'm looking at that line is just understanding that they're coming into the league 
not optimized. Yeah, they're going to come in with some dents in them already, right? And some wheels are out of alignment, and they're going to need some smart invested staff to get their wheels back in alignment before they try to go NBA season. Again, I appreciate Stan's call out. I said that before. But as much as the NBA hasn't figured this out yet, this is just an evolutionary step towards getting it really much better. There's a lot of smart people coming in the NBA staffs right now. NBA teams are invested in this. Organizations want to get it right. We're just at this intermediate stage where they're still figuring it out. I think all the pieces are there, the substrates in place to start having a real level up in terms of athlete care. I fully expect over these next few years that it'll feel like that. Even though the game will keep getting a little bit faster, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we start seeing a fall off in this climbing injury rates that we've seen. And of all the leagues, I really do think the NBA is the closest to getting it right. They're the most invested in their players, the most aligned with their players. They're in the best place. Quick one on the way out here. Who does it best? Which organization does it best? I always hate making those calls. Just feel like I have, I know too much, you know? <laughs> I don't like even singling out the players, but I will say, because I've thought about it recently, I really like the way Milwaukee's done it. This is a group that we work with less than most of the other groups, but they've hired people. Their director is a very smart guy who takes his craft very seriously. They gave him quite a bit of job security so that people weren't afraid to raise their hand when they made a mistake which is what you need to be able to do if you're going to keep evolving. And a lot of groups raise your hand when you make a mistake and you're gone, right? So people don't like to raise their hands. There's a handful of groups that are doing it well, but I feel like Milwaukee every year just gets a little bit better, a little smarter. They also have a long game. They're playing a long game. It's very hard to take care of these athletes. If every two or three years, you have this big disruption. You bring in a new group and you have a new philosophy and throw out your old data and you start over, right? Yeah. Players go through that. It's like a shockwave when you bring in a new group. So I think Milwaukee's done a really good job. There's a few groups that I would single out, but I'm going to go with them right now. Again, it's a group that we work with less with, but they work really well together as a staff and feels like they have a growth mentality over there. Well, it's funny. And it's also good to keep that in mind is that you can be the best medical staff or performance staff, strength staff, athletic training staff. And Chris Middleton might miss 40 games. Yes. Look, we had two guys in our pre-draft class this last year that went down with injuries before they started playing in the NBA. These are guys that were under our watch for a few months, you know, before we handed them off to their, their organizations to play summer league. And one of them was an injury that we didn't see coming at all to Chet Holmgren. Another was to Eric Liddell, EJ, mm-hmm. at ACL. And, you know, there was some risk factors there, but that kid deserves better. He's a great worker. He's going to be back. You know, he's going to be okay. But the point is that you can have the best information. I love our information right now and great insight into these systems. And it doesn't guarantee you have a great result. These are complex issues we're trying to solve. None of it is guaranteed. And also there's volatility in injuries. You know, there is some randomness to this game, but there's a lot less than we normally attribute to it. There's a lot more telegraph than we traditionally look for. Yes. It's getting better. Yes. Watch this league. Man, we could talk for hours, Marcus. I want to talk more about Chet. I've seen some good stuff on his recovery and rehab. We'll definitely have you back on this program. Thanks so much, Bill. All right, Marcus. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. 